0: Alright, for those of you who are, are new this morning, we have uh, Bibles in, in the uh, seatbacks in front of you, those are for you. If you don't have one, you can take it home, it's yours. Um, I had, over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be concentrating on the most central expression of our, our faith, which is, which is worship. Over the past summer and fall, I remember we did the topical series, and at that time I was uh going away from you now. <laughs> Sorry, stuff fell out. Over the past summer, uh we were talking about, you know, several different foundational topics and when we got to the subject of worship, I felt like it wasn't time. I felt like, you know, the Holy Spirit was kind of nudging to to move towards uh, you know, Philippians. And lo and behold, so we talked about Kingdom suffering basically for 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 a few weeks there, and it was timely. God, uh, there was a lot of suffering going on in the body. There is a lot of suffering going on in the body, and I think the Holy Spirit wanted to minister to us in in that way. But now I feel like it, it it's time to to go back before we go back into a book and finish that that part off. And so for the next couple of weeks, maybe two or three, um, want to uh, talk about the subject of worship, and. I didn't know if you knew this, but the topic of worship is controversial. Um, and I want to say that from the beginning that if you feel like I'm picking on you um, at at some point, don't worry because everyone will have a turn, including myself. <coughs> For some reason, the very thing that's meant to bring God glory brings us so much strife. Isn't Isn't that just the way it is if you look across the churches in America today you see the worship wars regarding you know the worship service we're just talking about the worship service part of it you know if you if you look at the churches you see you know the older generation they're frustrated by the casual appearance of the younger generation and younger pastors and this comes across you know sometimes as disrespectful to them wouldn't you say no one's going to say anything. I know. There is a strong desire, yeah. You know, I think by the older folks to play more hymns and to keep the grand piano and the organ present in this in the in the sanctuary. On the other on the other hand, the younger generation usually does not wear their Sunday best, and they have a "come just as you are" mindset. And uh, you know, sometimes a suit and tie can seem uh, appear superficial to them. When we know that's not the case, is it? I'm just stating things that are going on in our culture, right? The younger generation desires music they can relate to as well as the older music. But feeling the music is important. Feeling it. The younger generation are like cats. They're very finicky. They stay around if you meet their needs. The older generation are like dogs. They're extremely faithful, but they can bite if you mess with their tradition. (laughs) These are my... Please, I wrote this all yesterday, so please forgive me. And then there's the pastor, you know, the, the guy who is, has to balance it all, right? The guy who sounds like that wimpy husband. Yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. Contemporary, traditional, or blended service, things the pastor has to think about. Make sure we play at least one hymn per week, or I will be in trouble. Make sure we have drums and an electric guitar or they won't feel it. Make sure we don't get rid of the grand piano. Make sure the music isn't too loud or too soft. Make sure the font is big enough. Make sure the graphics are cool. Make sure I speak loudly. Make sure I'm funny. Make sure I'm serious. Make sure I wear nice clothes but not too nice. The form of blue jeans, dress shirt, and a blazer without a tie seems to help the older generation. Ties are for weddings and funerals, Christmas and Easter. Don't wear shorts or sandals, this is death. (laughs) Jeans, untucked shirt, being unshaven, basically looking homeless, helps with the younger generation. And something we can all agree upon, keep the message short. And now we can all worship. (laughs) Just wanted to state the obvious. There are worship wars going on in these other churches in America. Not ours. (laughs) I told you that you'd have a chance to get picked on. Everybody's going to be involved in this one. So I want to point out from the beginning that my intent on teaching upon the subject of worship is because we have a need to grow in this area. We have a deep need to grow in this area. I have a need to grow in my worship of God. Um, You know, I've been leading worship for 15, 16, 17 years. I forgot what it is, but. You know, I have yet to even comprehend true worship of, of Jesus Christ, true worship of the Father. There are blessings that we're missing out on, each of us, and I want us to grab hold of them. I don't want them to, to, you to go off in, in, in your life and to not experience the goodness that God has for you in this area of worship. And obviously, I'll need to define worship later on, which is obviously you always get into trouble when you get start to define something because there are loose ends everywhere. But I just want the Lord, you know, over the next few weeks to begin as we seek Him in His Word and through prayer and singing music, I pray that He would direct us in our worship of Him. That. The way that we see him now is not the way that we'll see him then. for the better. That all of our preconceived ideas and how we've always done things or what we expect things to be and look like would be laid at his throne. And let the Holy Spirit teach us how he wants to be worshipped in our church. Amen? And that's, what, that's where we're going to find unity, and that's where we're going to find glory in, in seeing Him as He is. and So if we could today, I'm going to talk about something very fundamental, and I just want to, us to open up to John chapter 4, verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, in this, in this place, in our hearts, Lord, that you'd speak to us. That you'd cause us to see you as you truly are. You'd help our hearts to surrender. You'd help us to realize our own prejudices, our own, our own biases, Lord. Our own traditions, Lord, whether they're good or bad, Lord. We help that you just expose them to us, Lord. The way that we want it to be in our, our and our discontent, Lord, we ask that the all these things, Lord, would be subject to your spirit and your word. So as we read, Lord, we ask that you'd bless us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I pray that this will be foundation, this teaching that Jesus gives here in John four about worship. There's many other things he's talking about, we'll kind of graze over. But this is the foundation. For all this other stuff we're going to talk about. And this is the foundation. So let's, let's, uh, if you could just follow along with me, I'm going to be reading. In verse 4, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was going, uh, he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his son Joseph. Now, it was not acceptable in that culture, as we talked about before, uh, for a Jew to go through Samaria while going to the north, as they made their way north. There was the middle section, which were Samarians. They did not go through there. When the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, They had taken almost everyone captive, but they didn't take the people they didn't want. And they were left there, you know, the destitute, the poor, they were just left there because people like Reap, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and all these royalty were, were pulled all the way over to Babylon so that they could be a part of their system and their culture. And so they left the destitute back in 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 israel well those people ended up marrying and intermarrying with the tribal people around there and these people slowly became came into a region and the samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group and because the samaritans had a historical connection to the people of israel their faith was a combination it was a hybrid it was a combination of law and ritual And uh, from the law of Moses and various superstitions. And most Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans. Even more than Gentiles. They just hated them. Because they were religiously speaking half-breeds. They were half-breeds who had a hybrid faith. They were betrayed. They weren't pure. And so Jesus was passing through this region. And he chose to go through this area. Being a Jew, let alone a rabbi. And... It's interesting, these people claimed to worship the true God. They claimed that their location was the right place. They claimed that their traditions supported this. And so this is very important in this discussion, as you will see when she starts talking about Jacob and all these other people in this well and their worship there. And so in verse 6, it says Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he went from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, especially Jewish rabbis. Jesus answered, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. And indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus comes to the edge of a Samaritan town, and he's resting by this ancient well. And his disciples go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. And he speaks to the Samaritan woman. And asks her for a drink. Now. This is something interesting about Jesus. When Jesus asks people for something. Or to do something. He's not really needing anything. He was thirsty. No doubt. There's the humanity. So yes give me a water. And he would get a water. And he would get food. And all these things. But Jesus was always about the kingdom. And the questions he asked. Were to draw out what was going on. In her inner heart. And it's. You know, it's, it's as if the thing he's asking for is the thing that he wants to give her. The thing that he is asking for is the very thing he wants to give her. Give me a drink. I want to give you living water. She doesn't realize she needs it. And Jesus is drawing it out of her. And when Jesus asks the question, He's getting ready to teach. And his teaching wakes that spiritual need within us. And so Jesus is asking for water. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I don't need to get thirsty. I won't get thirsty. You have to come to this well and draw water. Verse 16. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. People are thirsty. All of us are thirsty. Every single one of us. And this woman is a perfect example of a person who is trying to quench a thirst in her life that only God can quench. Jesus is masterfully, he's exposing that need in her life. Why? Because he wants to fill it. He wants to satisfy the soul. But she has to realize there's a need. We all have it, a thirst for God. Deep within every man, there's a thirst for God. David described it in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And again in Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Thirsty. Man tries to satisfy this thirst in many different ways. Ephesians 5.18, speaking about alcohol. Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is a man seeking when he turns to alcohol? example. He's trying to satisfy a deep need in his heart. There's a need in his soul that needs to be quenched. But what happens when a person is filled with the Spirit? That deep need is met. And so God's cure for alcoholism, we want to go to God's cure, is to turn from it and turn to God and to be filled with the holy spirit and to become a worshipper of him it seems so simple doesn't it and we know it's so complex and i don't want to undermine i, I don't want to mi- minimize is the word minimize the impact and the struggle i'm not doing that but there comes a time when we have to decide in our hearts god this does not quench my soul it's actually destroying my soul And I need to give it to you. And God's desire through a process, through the power of His Holy Spirit, is to fill that person with Him. To fill them with Him. And notice what happens. To be filled with Him. Instead of being drunk, He wants you to be filled with Him. And what's the byproduct of that? Worship. I want you to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, speaking to one another. That's powerful. God's cure for anxiety, we talked about that. God's, God's view on alcoholism. Many tried to satisfy their inner thirst with pleasurable experiences, relationships, entertainment, shopping. Now, these things aren't bad in themselves, are they? You know, they're not wrong. A Christian can enjoy these things far more than a non-Christian because a Christian is and should not be looking for them to do what they cannot do. And that is to satisfy that deep inner craving in your heart, in my heart. These things cannot satisfy. the Samaritan woman was trying to quench her thirst through relationships. And this is why she had been married five different times and was now living with a man. She made a very common mistake that's being made over and over again. And that is thinking that the deep thirst that she was experiencing could be filled in a relationship with a man. She no doubt felt that if she could just find the right man, her life would be content. Imagine that with each new husband, she felt, this is the one. This is the one that could bring me happiness. So Jesus is, is exposing this in her life. He's bringing up this need, this area of sin in her life. Why is he doing it? To rub her nose in it? Because he wants to satisfy it. Because he wants to heal her. He wants to be what all those people cannot do when we're never made to do. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is being filled with the Holy Spirit, his mercy and his love upon us. The Samaritan woman, she was trying to quench that. She could not. And notice when God brings this up, when Jesus brings this up, how the woman responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. As soon as Jesus reveals this thirst, she brings up a theological controversy that seems, and again, seems, this is my view, that seems to be saying, thank you for pointing out my sin. I see you're a spiritual guy. Well, riddle me this. Where is the right place to worship, Samaria or Jerusalem? And so if Jesus answers Jerusalem, she could dismiss him. Jew, you know? You're just trying to get me to do that. If he answers Samaria, then he wouldn't be a real rabbi, would he? He's a phony. Either way, she'd be able to dismiss him. But Jesus avoids the trap. And he focuses on the heart. While speaking the truth. He avoids the trap and he focuses on the heart. While still speaking the truth. That's hard to do, isn't it? And this is what he says. Verse 21. It says, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do not know, for salvation is of the Jews. Woman, a time is coming when you will worship. Right now, you are focused on the physical. This mountain or Jerusalem, but you will become a true worshiper. I love how Jesus sees her. You will be a worshiper. The truth right now is that you don't know what you worship. And we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. Those are hard words. The Samaritans believe that Moses commissioned an altar on the Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing, and this was their justification of their system of worship on that mountain. But like all faiths that try to combine elements of different religions, they worship what they do not know. Verse 23, Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Right now, this moment, God is seeking a certain kind of worshiper. There are qualifications. And those qualifications have nothing to do with contemporary or traditional organs or electric guitar. The qualifications to be a true worshiper, a worshiper that is acceptable to God, is to be one that worships the Father in spirit and in truth. And frankly, I've been caught up in the physical aspects of worship, being worship leader and working with equipment, and you know, and sound and technology and all that's fun, but it can become an idol. It can become more important at times than spirit and truth and seeking Him. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, because like the Samaritan, it is possible for us to worship what we do not know. What do I mean? Verse 24, it says, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Do we understand that God is spirit and that he says how we are to worship him? He, he tells us how he is, what is acceptable worship. Worshippers that are accepted by Him, they must worship in spirit and truth. We don't like things when people tell us you must. Do you? We want to leave the options open for expression and however I want to do it. Accept me just as I am. God, I don't feel like it. You know, I mean, all these things we all struggle with, right? But God says, no, if you were to worship, you must be. A person who worships in spirit and truth, and this is very difficult for us underst- to understand sometimes, especially me, because so much of how we learn to worship is tied up in physical things. It's tied up in physical things, you know. And I just wrote down several: why the stained glass, why the pulpit, why the cross. Now you go. What? Why the cross? Did Jesus say? put a cross on the wall did jesus say anything about making the cross i love the cross it's not going anywhere but do you get what i'm saying that even something we don't even know what the cross really looked like do we says that he was on a cross was it a t like this or was it a t like that I'm just saying, well, it must have been, I know we do the logic, but it didn't say exactly how it was, did it? But nevertheless, that is the image that we connect with Christianity. Does that make sense? The Grand piano, the organ in some churches, the pulpit. Why, why am I up here and you're down there? What if I sat down there and you all stood up here? It's not convenient, but, I mean, it's tradition, is it not? I kind of like it. I'm not trying to get into, you know, the, the, everything is useless. Why do we do what we you know, you know? Just forget there are no rules. That's not what I'm getting at. You know, why the band? Why the worship band? Why the electric guitar and the drums? Why do we do two songs, say hello to everybody, and then do four songs? Why announcements? Lord. <laughs> the curse of the church. Not that they're, you know. We struggle. Where do we put them? It's like you've got to tell people stuff, otherwise they're not going to find out. You guys don't listen anyways. <laughs> was that harsh? Too harsh? I heard it was harsh. Yeah, sorry. I don't listen either. The reality, you know. And the Old Testament was very specific on how they were to worship. Very specific, down to the T, wasn't it? But the New Covenant something totally different, isn't it? Very different. It's almost spiritual. When The new Gentile believers were faced with becoming Christians. They became Christians. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then they went back to the Jewish council. The Jewish council there in Acts said, they said, what do we do with these people? You know, what do we tell them to do? Should they follow the law of Moses or not? And what did they say? They struggled with it back and forth. They said, hey, just don't eat stuff that's sacrificed to idols and go worship God. Tremendous liberty and freedom that Christ has given us. A lot of what we do and how we approach Him is predicated upon church tradition and Christian culture. A lot of what we do. And this is important. While all the things I've mentioned are great in helping us remember Him and our vehicles that we use to help express our worship, they do not produce acceptable worship. My guitar does not produce worship. It creates noise. Sound. <laughs> <coughs> the drums. <laughs> More so, my friend. No, Don't worry, no one's going to say E. Absolutely. That is what creates worship. The Samaritans were primarily focused on a place, a mountain, an altar, and the tradition of their fathers, which was utterly and totally false. They were totally sincere in their worship. Now, I'm not saying that this building, CCF, is false and that the electric guitar and piano need to go. Not at all. We're not Gnostics here. We're not saying that all material things are bad. That's not what we're getting at. What I am saying is that the Samaritan woman thought that she worshipped God because of her heritage and where she worshipped. And Jesus said, no, no, look at your life, dear woman. You do not worship God, because if you did, it would impact your relationships. And if you knew God and worshipped Him, it would permeate your life. that's a shot to me. It isn't about the mountain or Jerusalem. It's about our hearts being in alignment with the truth of God's word and living it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is being a true worshiper. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. She claimed to know God, but she did not. And she claimed to worship God and it was evident by her life that she did not. And she might have been even very sincere, but her life, her worship, was not according to truth, to his truth. And that, my friends, is why Jesus showed up. And that is why he's here this morning. And that is why we are gathered so that we would be a people that would worship Him the way that He prescribes to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And that is the foundation for all the other things we'll talk about if we get into them, pianos, guitars, you know, all this type of stuff. It's spirit and truth. Because what I feel the older generation saying when they say, I want to hear more hymns. Is I want to connect with him. With the songs that stirred my heart. And the younger generation saying, I want to feel him too. I think there's a sincere desire to meet him. But sometimes our flesh gets in the way and we get so focused on how we do it. We lose That underlying spirit and truth, that I can worship God to muzak, somehow, you know, I I recant. Never mind. No, just you know what I'm saying. But to call her from a life of false worship to a life of true worship, worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. In spirit, meaning being concerned with the spiritual realities. Not the outward sacrifices, the cleansing and the trappings. The spiritual realities behind what was happening. Why we do what we do. The heart. In truth. It's not just to do it, but to do it according to what he says. That's truth. Thy word is truth. That's how we worship God. That is acceptable worship. Especially in the light of the New Testament. And God will accept worshipers who worship him that way. In spirit and truth. And this is why Cain was rejected and Abel was accepted, not because of their offerings, but because of their hearts. This is why the widow's offering was more than all the others, not because of the amount, but because of her heart. And this is why God will accept your worship, not because of your voice or your talent or the songs you sing because of your heart. He is longing. He is looking, desiring for worshipers here to worship Him in spirit and truth. Let Him possess you. Let Him control you. Let Him fill you. Let Him change you. You know, and if our sister over there is jumping up and down because God has redeemed her from a life of horrible sin, Praise God. Wake up and worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. It's the heart. So let's pray and let's just sing a couple songs to the Lord. Father, you are so good. We just pray that you inhabit our praises and minister to our hearts as we give you ours.